we actually began two weeks ago talking about the purpose of generosity as part of our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And one of the most important and most difficult things that King Jesus tells us to do when we worship him is to give. And it's not about paying the bills or keeping the lights on. Giving generously to the Lord should be an overflow of something much bigger in our lives, right? We, we said two weeks ago, we said the whole big idea is we worship God by using all of our finances to love him and to love our neighbors. And, and that's the big idea. So the biblical purpose of money isn't to acquire and store up more and more wealth for ourselves. The biblical purpose of money after providing for ourselves and after providing for our dependents is having something to give to meet the spiritual and physical needs of other people. When we give to them, we're giving to the Lord and we'll be richly rewarded by God for doing so. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Here's what it says. It says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So taking in this offering was an act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So so Paul lays something out. He lays out a series of biblical principles for generosity in these verses. So two weeks ago we covered the first three. And I just kind of want to recap them with you. Number one, that God is the absolute giver. Everything we have, including the ability to use it all, to love God and love our neighbors is a gift of grace. It's an expression of God's undeserved favor over our lives. The second principle that we learn is generosity is the fruit of surpassing joy. So we gladly spend finances on whatever brings us the most joy. You won't discover freedom to stop loving money and start loving God with your money until your soul is fully satisfied and there's joy in Jesus in your life. The third principle that we learn is the giving that pleases God is proportional and voluntary. 
He's the God who ignored the rich when they dumped a bag of gold into the temple treasury and celebrated the poor widow who just gave two copper coins. Why? Because it's all she had to live on. So the biblical emphasis isn't on the amount of your gift relative to other people. It's about what that gift represents of all that Jesus in his perfect wisdom has entrusted you with. So the churches of Macedonia exemplified this when Paul urged them to help relieve the financial needs of the church in Jerusalem. And it says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So why would they beg to take part in this relief? Why, why was giving not an unfortunate duty? Why was it not simply just a drag to, to take out finances and give? What made it an incredible privilege for these people? Well, it's found in the very next few verses. Principle number four is this. Giving our money starts with giving ourselves. Giving our finances starts with giving ourselves. Understanding verse five is crucial in order to understand God's purpose for money and what it means to worship God with our money. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Jesus is exchanged with a, a Jewish lawyer helps us to understand what Paul is talking about here. He said this. He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets depend. When we turn away from loving sin, making the possessions, power, and pleasures of this world your greatest treasure, and choose to love the Lord Jesus instead, embracing him as our greatest treasure, we don't give part of ourselves to him. We give all of ourselves to him. Think about it. Jesus didn't create part of you for himself. He didn't die on a cross to redeem part of you from sin and death. He created all of you. He redeemed all of you. He's saved all of you. His claim on your lives as creator and savior is utterly comprehensive. It covers all bases. He isn't looking for some sort of religious affiliation from your life. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. Only if you're willing to give all of yourself to him will he give all of himself to you. You want to know why the Macedonians devoted their finances to the Lord's priorities and purposes? They gave their finances because they had already given themselves, which is is what being a Christian is all about. It's about giving ourselves to Jesus. It's about surrendering our lives to Jesus. Why? Because he purchased us at the cost of his own life. And here's the key connection. When we give ourselves to Jesus... We're also giving ourselves to his body. Giving ourselves to him means giving ourselves to others. It says this, In giving themselves to the Lord, the Macedonians gave themselves to God's people. Their fellowship, communion, and union with God drove their fellowship, communion, and union with one another. Imagine I came to you and I said, 
Friend, I am committed to loving you as a part of my family. But whenever your children are in need, I never take care of them. I never give what I have to provide for your needs at all. What would you think? Perhaps your mind would go to a place where you said, hey, maybe they really don't love me. Maybe he really doesn't love me. Yet when the opposite happens, when a friend or family member makes a significant financial sacrifice to spiritually or physically care for my daughters, what do I feel as a dad? I feel like they love me in the most precious way imaginable. Something is missing here. When we read in the book of Acts, and all who believe were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Our first thought is here, Pastor Tom, please explain to me the exegetical, original meaning of this text, because it can't mean what it appears to mean. Well, Luke isn't saying here that they impoverished themselves for the sake of others. He's saying that instead of storing up possessions and belongings and wealth for themselves, they seized every opportunity that came to them to use their finances to meet the needs of others. Why? Because recognize they recognize that giving them giving themselves to the lord meant giving themselves to one another and to other people and to this community called the church see when it comes to loving god and our neighbor giving of our finances starts with ourselves the fifth principle is this giving is a spiritual discipline in verse 6, Paul tells the Corinthians how he urged Titus to lead their church in gathering financial resources for the church in Jerusalem. And he beautifully describes their giving as an act of grace. Then he goes on in verse 7, he says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. Now, to excel in something means to do something really well. It literally means setting a good example for other people to follow. Now, the Corinthians prided themselves on using the supernatural spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, word of knowledge, and Paul recognizes the way that they've pursued and excelled in all matters of godly virtues, including virtues connected to the practice of spiritual gifts, such as faith and speech. He says, you, you've worked hard to be faithful, to excel in all of these areas of your Christian life. And for that, I commend you. I congratulate you. You've made me proud. But that's exactly what you need to do over here in an area that you've neglected called giving. It's an act of grace in the sense that it requires grace. God gives us, as an expression of his undeserved favor, finances to give and the power to give it. It's also an act of grace in the sense that it gives grace to other people, those who will benefit from that gift. In this biblical text, this case, the Christians in the church in Jerusalem will receive a tangible, practical expression of God's undeserved favor in their life. I've seen this time and time again. We've gone out 
to deliver boxes of hope. We give that call and let those folks know, hey, we've just delivered a box of hope. It's on your, your doorstep right now. The gratitude that begins to gush out and pour out of them because your faithful giving has been funneled into this place where it can bless our community. That faithful, that expression, that undeserved favor, that is the grace of God that has reached their doorstep. Those boxes of hope, that financial giving that you have done has been channeled through to the grace of God being manifest on the doorstep of our friends, our families, and our neighbors. Yet the fact that it's an act of grace doesn't mean that we're passive in it. If, in other words, some people will say, well, if God wants to break in and tell me in an audible voice to give financially to someone, well, I'm on standby. I'm waiting to hear you, Lord. And it's easy for us to, to live like that. And we, we quiet down our conscience by saying, I'm willing to give as the Lord leads. But then we rarely, if ever, pray for more opportunities to give or or we rarely if ever actively seek our opportunities to do so it's an act of grace in the fact that it requires our careful planning our hard work and initiative on our part investing financially in the work of god is doing is meeting the spiritual and physical needs of people all around us is no less an active spiritual discipline than prayer or bible reading or evangelism we read books on all of those disciplines we've attended conferences before we've listened to preachings we talk with one another about how we're doing in all those disciplines we challenge one another to keep growing and to excel in our practice of them but not so with giving when was the last time that you read a book on the grace of giving when was the last time that we prayed that god would help us excel in the grace of giving So we really need to question ourselves and say, what might excelling in the act of giving look like for us? And it starts with having the courage and the humility to have an honest conversation about this topic. And ask yourself, is it hard for me to give generously? How do you decide what giving according to your means and beyond your means is in accordance with this scripture? What does that look like for me and for my family? Where am I perhaps tempted to be selfishness and to guard? Are you being active or passive perhaps and looking for opportunities to be a giving person? This is crucial in our lives, friends. Because we're called to give of ourselves. Generosity is a lifestyle for a Christian. It goes beyond Risen King Church. It goes into global charities. It goes when we see homeless folks on the street. It goes when we see people who can't pay their bills or can't pay, buy groceries for their children. We don't just sit there in those moments and say, I'd like to pray for you and do nothing about it. We pray and we act and we do because we live out of a place of generosity because our Father is the greatest giver. Principle number six is the gospel teaches us the purpose of wealth. Look at verse nine, and this is where we need to fix our gaze and not look away. It says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. When the Lord commands us joyfully and generously to love him and our neighbor with our finances, he's not asking us to do something that he hasn't done already himself. See, he already leads us by example. And he motivates us by example. He shows us what it looks like to take all that we are and all that we have and lay it down for the glory of God the Father and for the good of those who bear his image. He takes us to a stable in Bethlehem. He invites us to behold an act of grace that melts our selfishness and shattered our pride. What did Jesus do with his wealth? What did he do with the heavenly splendor that he knew from eternity past? He was the one who dwelt in unimaginable light. He was the, he's the mighty one, the God of all the universe, surrounded before all time began with cries of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Perfect peace surrounded him. Mind-shattering beauty was around him. Awesome holiness, no sin, no pain, no sorrow. And he chose to give that all up for us. Lay down his riches, his wealth, to become a man. Why? To do for you what you could never do for yourself. To save you from sin and death. He didn't give to us of himself. He gave himself completely to us. Through him, God himself has given us his righteousness, his life, his glory, his joy. He's promised us the new heavens and the new earth, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. If God has it, he's given it. Why? Because it's who he is. He's not a God who takes. He's a God who gives. It's his very nature to give. It's part of the goodness of God. Scripture teaches us that he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That harvest isn't a bigger pile of earthly riches. As if we give more, we get more. It's in fact a spiritual harvest of men and women and children and people from across every nation, every people group, every language who come to know Jesus and are transformed more and more into his image because of our obedient generosity. Scripture says you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. If God has enriched you, if he's given more than you need to provide for yourself and your dependents, then know this. The rest isn't yours to keep. It's something that God has entrusted you to give. That's the biblical purpose. The goal of our wealth after providing for ourselves and our dependents is to have something to give to our neighbors. Jesus didn't cling to his riches. He, he came to lay them down. He became poor so that we might become rich. He, he didn't tithe on his wealth. He didn't give just 10% of his wealth. Jesus literally gave it all 
to us. And his calling to us is go and do likewise. Worship God with your finances by using all of it to love him and to love your neighbors. May Jesus help us in this moment to contribute generously and cheerfully to the support of the work of our church family, to the relief of the poor, to help spread the gospel to the nations, to fight injustice here and abroad. This is the calling of the believer. Scripture says, and Jesus said it best himself, he proclaimed when he showed up on the scene that this was the year of the Lord's favor. Let's proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's be part of the solution together. Let's see God's presence shower the entirety of North Jersey, shower the entirety of our communities, our towns, our families. We are waiting on God to spark the greatest revival that mankind has ever known. There is an awakening that is on the horizon and God's presence is about to manifest and move in a way that we have never seen before, church family. And I want us to be a part of what Jesus is going to do. And we will collectively declare on earth as it is in heaven.